0: welcome to the north sound church podcast for more information about north sound church please visit our website at Northsoundchurch.com.: wow that was wonderful thank you so much pastor casey for a wonderful job this morning and all that went into making this happen pastor allen for uh, your role with choir and orchestra thank you sir And uh, thank you all for being here today on this very special Easter Sunday. We are privileged to uh, have you joining us here today. We had a wonderful time of baptism between the services as four people followed the Lord in the waters of baptism, and uh, that was a wonderful uh, thing for us to be able to, uh, to do together. Today we are going to uh, celebrate the resurrection together and I'm delighted that you chose to join us. Thank you for those who are a regular part of the Norsound family and for those who are guests with us today we will appreciate the fact that you were able to, uh, to join us in this time. On May 26, uh, 1920, a baby girl of Norwegian, and swedish ancestry by the name of norma dolores eggstrom was born in jamestown north dakota how many of you know where jamestown is in north dakota i don't see very many hands how many of you know where where fargo uh is that yeah that's is that because of the movie or yeah (laughs) okay So she was born in Jamestown, North Dakota on the Great Plains, and her mom died when Norma was just four years of age. And with passing of her mom, her father eventually remarried. And when her father remarried, it was sort of the classic story around uh, the mean stepmother, and that indeed happened to Norma. She had a a tough life as a little girl, but there was one area in which she was very successful, and that was with her voice. She began to sing in high school. She began to sing in church. She began to sing in uh, college kinds of of groups, bands, semi-professional. And after she graduated, she went to Hollywood to see if she could make it there, but it didn't go as well as she had hoped, and so she returned back to to the Midwest, and uh, she joined the radio station WDAY in Fargo, North Dakota as a singer on the radio station, and it was the station manager, Ken Kennedy, who christened her Peggy Lee. Peggy was successful professionally as a singer and as an actress, but her private life was not so successful. She went through the challenges of four marriages, and in 1968, she came out with a hit song and an album, actually, that talked about the joys and the sorrows of life, and she found herself asking, Is that all there is? I want you to hear the yearning in her heart described in those words. She said, I remember when I was a little girl, our house caught fire. I'll never forget the look on my father's face as he gathered me up, gathered me up in his arms and raced through the burning building out on the pavement. And I stood there shivering in my pajamas and watched the whole world go up in flames. And when it was all over, I said to myself, is that all there is to a fire? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. She goes on in the next verse to say, And when I was 12 years old, my daddy took me to the circus, the greatest show on earth. There were clowns and elephants and dancing bears, and a beautiful lady in pink tights flew high above our heads. And as I sat there watching, I had the feeling that something was missing. I don't know what, but when it was all over, I said to myself, is that all there is to the circus? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. And then I fell in love with the most wonderful boy in the world. We'd take long walks by the river or just sit for hours gazing into each other's eyes. We were so very much in love. And then one day he went away and I thought I'd die, but I didn't. And when I didn't, I said to myself, is that all there is to love? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep... uh." And she goes to stop at that point and she says, I know what you must be saying to yourselves. If that's the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh no, not me. I'm not ready for that final disappointment because I know just as well as I'm standing here talking to you, that when that final moment comes and I'm breathing my last breath, I'll be saying to myself, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. About a week after 9-11 happened, I was working in the Pentagon Family Assistance Center in the Sheraton Hotel in Crystal City, right beside the Pentagon. It had been set aside as a family assistance center so that families could come and have free accommodation. And each day there was a briefing by a general army general in the morning and in the evening and during the day there were there was another uh, room set aside in the hotel in order for people to have access to insurance companies to Alaska airlines and to various military people to answer their questions and to be of help to them on one occasion the general was asked about remains. And of course, with the 767 going into the building with full fuel tanks, there wasn't much left of their loved ones. So they asked if they could take rubble from the building and they were not able to do so at that time, but were later able to do so. Shortly after folks were taken down to the Pentagon and stood on a small hill, as you see here in the picture, to be able to see the place where their loved ones passed away. And although the army general, I don't believe, was ever asked this particular question, I think there is little doubt that on the minds and the hearts of the people who gathered there was the question, is that all there is? When life is at its worst, the cry of the human heart is, is that all there is? But I think you may agree with me that there are times even when life is great we ask that question. Perhaps on a vacation watching the sunset and as the sun sets over the mountains or over the ocean and it's such a wonderful precious moment but at that moment that you think that it's not going to get any better so often passes across our heart a yearning for even something more than that. Mark Buchanan has written a wonderful story called Things Unseen, and in his book he talks about the yearning that we have in our hearts for something more. He talks about the story of his friend Eugene, and. I was impressed with the story of Eugene because I think his story is our story. His story is a parable of our lives and show, although the circumstances may be a little different than each one of us, I think the story is very similar one that we will recognize. Eugene drove home one day to find the house cleaned out. His wife had left him and had taken their two-year-old daughter, Heather, with her all she left was a note. She had been having an affair with his best friend and had gone to be with him. Eugene suffered pain so great that had not the numbness of the shock also come over him, it would have pulled him to pieces. His wife and daughter, along with the man she has stole off with, had vanished, leaving no forwarding address. Every night for months, Eugene drove through the city streets, going to every place he thought they might be. His search was in vain. After each attempt, he would go home to a cold house, desolate, and fall on his knees and weep and beg God. Finally, Eugene found them. His wife refused to come back, and through some legal maneuvers, she was able to get sole custody of their daughter. Heather was only four. The man she had run off with adopted Heather, and they never told her of Eugene's existence. When she was eight... Heather's mother died, and his last link with his daughter snapped. Eugene lost his little girl. On a shelf, Eugene keeps a photograph of Heather and himself taken the day before he last saw her. She is, uh, he is young and sad, and she's a small girl in a red jacket, her hair swept over her face by the wind. She looks puzzled the way children do when they know something is wrong but don't know what it is. In a matter of hours, they would be separated for almost 20 years. Every day for nearly 20 years, Eugene prayed for her. In time, Eugene met a beautiful lady, a mother with two girls who had been through her own Jobian trials. They married and adopted a son. They've had years of good health and financial prosperity. They moved into and renovated a log home with a yard sloping down towards gardens, edged in brilliant azaleas, and rhododendrons, and the main windows and deck overlooking an inner harbor where sailboats and sports boats and yachts come in and out. Their marriage is strong. The children and grandchildren now are thriving. They travel to Maui or California or Kentucky for holidays. They have many friends who would do anything for them, and they would do anything for their friends. A few years ago, on Eugene's 50th birthday, Heather came back She found Eugene and wrote to him, and she came back. She lives hundreds of miles away, but they have extended visits with each other several times a year. She became part of his life, part of his family. Eugene's wife and she are now friends. Heather calls her mom, and often the two of them will stay up late into the night and talk about anything and everything while Eugene, who loves sleep, heads off to bed. Good night, honey, he says to her, and good night, dad, she says to him. And the second Christmas after Heather came back, she shyly showed him her credit card. What's this, he asked. Look at the name, she said. She had changed her name. It was the same as his. Like Job, who had so much restored to him, Eugene's life had become good. But there remained a deep vacancy And there was the realization in the midst of joy just how much he had lost. He couldn't tuck Heather into bed, teach her to ride a bicycle or tell her about God. And now she had little interest in God or in church. In the midst of life as good as it gets, friends, we long for more. I like the way Buchanan wraps up the story of Eugene by talking about heaven. He says... Heaven is where our inescapable sense of loss and incompleteness is overcome. It's the one thing large enough to answer our deepest longings and console our deepest griefs. Our hunger for perfect justice and perfect joy and perfect peace are met there. Maybe, just maybe, the sorrow is not forgotten or bathed in the light of perfect understanding. Maybe all of it, every last shred of it, is redeemed, given back. And Eugene gets to tuck Heather into bed and sing her a lullaby. The writer of Ecclesiastes in the scripture knew something about this. In chapter 2, he describes the search for meaning and fulfillment in this life, and he had pretty much everything one could want, but it wasn't enough. Listen to his description. He says, Oh, I did great things, built houses, planted vineyards, designed gardens and parks, and planted a variety of fruit trees in them, made pools of water to irrigate the groves of trees. I bought slaves, male and female, who had children, giving me even more slaves. Then I acquired large herds and flocks, larger than any before me in Jerusalem. I piled up silver and gold, loot from kings and kingdoms. I gathered a chorus of singers to entertain me with song, and most exquisite of all pleasures voluptuous maidens for my bed. Oh, how I prospered. I left all my predecessors in Jerusalem far behind. I left them behind in the dust. What's more, I kept a clear head through it all. Everything I wanted, I took. I never said no to myself. I gave in to every impulse, held back nothing. I sucked the marrow of pleasure out of every task. My reward to myself for a hard day's work. And then I took a good look at everything I'd done. Looked at all the sweat and hard work, but then I looked, I saw nothing but smoke, smoke and spitting in the wind. There was nothing to any of it, nothing. So he asked himself the question, is that all there is? And his resounding answer was, no, I have everything, but it's not enough. He yearned for something more. The writer of Ecclesiastes gives us a glint of hope a little bit later when he suggests what this might look like, what something more might look like. He said, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Think about this for a moment. He has set eternity in the hearts of men. What does it mean to have eternity in our hearts, to have heaven set in our hearts? What difference does it make to our lives today? C.S. Lewis made an astute observation about what it means to have eternity in our hearts and what that means as far as heaven is concerned. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there's such a thing as sex. I find in myself no experience which this world can satisfy. If I find in myself no experience in which this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, then that does not mean that the universe is a fraud. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. Lewis goes on to say, when the real want for heaven is present in us, we do not recognize it. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that can offer to give it to you, but they never quite live up to their promise. Is this life all there is? Lewis would say, no, the very longing we have is evidence for something more. The experience of this life makes us long for something more and heaven is where we begin to experience completeness. The book of Revelation is the record of John who in his elder years on the Isle of Patmos off Turkey wrote the book of Revelation talking in places about God's intended future. In chapter 21, he gives a brief description of the kind. heaven will be he said I heard a voice thunder from the throne, and look look God has moved into the neighborhood making his home with men and women they're his people he's their God he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes death is gone for good tears gone crying gone pain gone and so the answer to the question is that all there is becomes a resounding no in the light of heaven Florence Chadwick, in 1952, set out to be the first woman to cross from Catalina Island to the mainland of California. She had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel back, to, back and forth from France back to England. The day that she headed out to do it was foggy. And it was cold, but nonetheless, she got in the water at Catalina and began to swim. In the boat beside her was her mother and a team of supporters to help her in that journey. She swam for 15 hours, and after 15 hours, she was exhausted physically and emotionally. And she asked her mother to take her out of the water, and her mother said, you're very close, and you're going to make it. And so she kept swimming a bit longer, but finally exhausted, she quit swimming, and they pulled her out of the water on that that foggy day. And Florence, when she got into the boat, could see what she hadn't seen from the water. She saw that she was only half a mile from the California mainland. At a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore... I would have made it. Friends, why consider heaven? Because this life is not all there is, and seeing the shore can give us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And so we come to Easter. This week we have followed Jesus' journey to the cross on Thursday we had communion together remembering the Last Supper. On Friday, we had a wonderful tenebrae service, a service of shadows as Casey led us in remembering the cross. And then today, we recognize that the cross was not the end of the story, that Jesus rose again, and we who believe he is the Son of God look forward to being with him in heaven. And that this life is not all there is. But friends, we don't have to wait for heaven. Here's the thing. Because of the resurrection, that kind of life begins now in every one of our lives. Just this morning, I read Trish Harrison Warren's column. She is an Anglican priest and uh, writes to a national audience, and I happened to catch it this morning. And she interviewed for Easter Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, the theologian. And Tom Wright wrote a book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. And uh, if you think that that's an easy book to write, it took him over 800 pages to talk in detail about the resurrection of the Son of God. And so she asks him some questions, and um, we, don't have time to, uh, we don't have time for all of them, but there's one that I wanted to share with you. She asked Tom Wright this question. She said, let's say that what the Gospels claim is true, Jesus is risen. It seems that the world keeps going, and there's still oppression, suffering, and grief. There's still death, so what difference does it make that Jesus is raised from the dead? Tom Wright says, it's exactly the same objection that people made right at the beginning, including during the public career of Jesus. He went about saying, this is what it looks like when God becomes king. And the people would say, well, there's still an awful lot of bad stuff going on. Caesar's still ruling the world. And Jesus constantly told stories to say, no, this is what God's kingdom looks like. It's like a seed that grows secretly like someone planting lots of seeds and some go bad, but look over here, there's a huge harvest coming over here. He goes on to say, obviously bad things happen. Bad things happen in and through the church. We all know that. I know as well as anyone, but all sorts of great and good things do happen. Healing happens, hope happens, and ultimately it all goes back to this single seed of raising Jesus from the dead. When Jesus was arrested, one of his closest followers had a sword and was prepared to do battle. But as soon as the resurrection happens, we find that everything has changed and they are embodying Jesus' agenda, which is to love your enemies and pray for your persecutors so that when the first Christian martyr is killed, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, as he is dying, says, Lord, do not hold this against them the deep spirit of Jesus' way is going about doing God's kingdom. And it has changed with them because the resurrection has shown them the way to victory. And it's not by fighting, it's not by force of arms, but it's by the way of the cross and the resurrection which follows. And that is as radical today as it ever was. And so, friends, today and every day We join with those who have gone before us and those who will come after us to work together to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven because this is not all there is. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the wonderful truth of the resurrection. And in the midst of the challenges of our lives when we wonder, is this all there is? Easter gives us a profound no. This is not all there is. Not only do we look forward to heaven with eternity in our hearts, but each day we experience the joy of being part of your kingdom, the seeds that are planted, that are growing into our lives and together changing the world. And for that, we give you thanks in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.